Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Jared's grandfather was a country Baptist preacher. But Jared wanted nothing to do with his grandfather's world. He tried when he was young to be a good Christian. Once Jared got into high school, he encountered the world. And he realized he really liked the world. Of course, he also really liked his grandfather and his parents. And so Jared managed to continue looking like a Christian. He said all of the right things. He was still at church. He was still a youth group. And people still looked to him as the Christian kid. But he knew that on the side, when he was at school, when he wasn't with his Christian friends, he just did what he wanted to do. He wasn't interested in following in his grandfather's footsteps. He liked the world. And he told God, as he dealt with the beginnings of a guilty conscience, he told God, God, if you really wanted me to live like a good Christian... Why would you give me so many friends who tempt me toward the world? And why would you give me not even one friend to help me live like a Christian? And by saying that, he was able to sort of ease his conscience. This continued on until college. Jared went out of town to college. He didn't know anyone there. And whatever restraint he had felt back home, it was gone. He loved the world, and now he didn't even have to pretend that he didn't love the world. He threw himself into the party life, into the party scene of college, and did really whatever he wanted to do. In two years' time, he was an addict. He began by enjoying sin, and now he was captured by sin. Two years in, he's caught in its snare. He's addicted to substances, he's addicted to women, he's addicted to partying, and he stops and realizes in that moment that all the friends he had would no longer be his friends if he left the party scene. So even socially, he is caught in this lifestyle. He's desperate one morning after partying, wakes up, horrible headache, absolutely miserable, feels himself enslaved to this lifestyle that he is stuck in. And he looks down and he beats his chest and he prays, God, please be merciful to me, the sinner. Amazingly, God answers that prayer. God saves Jared. Not only saves him, clears his guilt, but over the next two years, as he finishes up college, begins to pull him out of these addictive, terrible ways of life that he'd invested himself in. It takes time, it takes effort, but God is drawing him out so that by the time Jared graduates, he's now a fairly healthy Christian. He's getting in the Word every few days. He's praying sometimes. He's in a church. He even meets his wife at this church. They get married. Things are looking good, and he's very grateful for that. Then a few more years go by, and the stresses of married life and just life start to get to him. Slowly, somehow, he had gotten away from getting in the Word and prayer, doesn't even know how it happened. He just stopped doing it. Now, two years later, he's praying, God, if you want me to live for you, why are you making it so hard? 
Why can't I get ahead of my bills? Why do I need surgery on my knee? Why do you seem so far away? More and more, Jared is growing frustrated. Why isn't God helping me? He's frustrated at God. He gets frustrated at his wife. He says, why isn't she caring more about me, meeting some of the physical needs that I have? And so one night, frustrated with God, frustrated with his wife, frustrated with his life, he turns to pornography. And it doesn't take very long. He's fully immersed in it. It begins to take over his life, just like his old addictions had done. Only now there are more consequences because he's married and his family feels it, feels it with his relationships at church. But again, he says, my wife doesn't care about me, so I'm going to take care of myself. His grandpa, the Baptist preacher, visits them, finds out this is the issue going on in their marriage and tries to reason with him, tries to encourage him away from that way of life. Jared just thinks, you're a religious hypocrite. You are too good for your britches. I don't want to hear any of that. You don't really understand me. His grandpa leaves his wife. She's encouraging him. Look, we heard in the Sunday school, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to help you overcome this sin. And he just thinks and verbalizes to her, that's so naive. That's a Sunday school answer. You don't understand the kind of addiction I've got. What I'm immersed in is something a lot more complicated than that. It's not something that just the Bible's going to help me with. You don't understand my demons. You don't understand the things I'm wrestling with. He thinks that she's just naive, pushes her away, pushes God away, continues in his addiction. Is there hope for Jared? That is the question that we are looking at today. Of course, we only have a few minutes to answer it. And these situations I present to you, which by the way, are totally fictional, made up. But these situations I present to you do require a lot of complex working through things in real life. I grant that. But of course, we don't have that kind of time here. So what I do want to give you, though, is the beginnings of a sense of hope for someone like Jared or yourself, if you see any comparisons. And we're going to do that as we've done in each class on the basis of this thesis or argument that what helps us the most in overcoming struggles, sins, fears, etc., is an accurate, deep, true knowledge of God. Those who know their God will be strong and act. So that's what we're arguing in this class. And what I want to point out today is that there's hope for Jared because of the power of God. So let's do as we always do. We're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at the power of God as God reveals it to us in the Bible. No opinions. What is the power of God revealed to us in the Bible? At the end, we're going to circle back around, see how that influences us when it comes to our humility, and then how that relates to Jared's story. So let's look at the power of God. I've called this attribute God's power. Some of you are more familiar with a different term, a big term. And does anyone know that term for God's power? Omnipotence. You think, are we speaking in tongues? We're not speaking in tongues. But omnipotence is a very large word. It comes from omni, O-M-N-I, which means all. So a lot of God's attributes, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnisapience, go on and on. The omni means all, okay? 
Then the second part here is potens from the Latin, and it just means power. So you could say, why don't we just call it all power? <laughs> I don't know, theologians want to make it complicated. So that's what we call it, is omnipotence. But know that it simply means all power, and therefore we're just going to call it God's power. Same thing. There are other terms that refer to this. If you read your Bible, you'll come across the term almighty. God is almighty. It means exactly the same thing. It's not any different. Omnipotence is from Latin. Almighty is from Old English. It's exactly the same thing. So call it what you want to call it. We also don't have a noun for that, almightiness. So we use omnipotence. It's God's power. You may also wonder as we get started here, how does God's power relate to the attribute of sovereignty? God's sovereignty. We're just going to think of it this way. God's sovereignty is when God uses his power. That's what God's sovereignty is. It's in a very technical sense, it's not an attribute of God. It's God reigning. You see the word reign in there, R-E-I-G-N. So sovereign just means over. God reigns over everything. He controls all things. So that's sovereignty of God. That's related to power. Power is the bigger category. Sovereignty is when God's using his power in the world, directing all things. That's his sovereignty. So we are talking also about his sovereignty today. So you could call it that if you want. But we're just going to, again, the bigger term is the power of God. What is the power of God? What does it mean? All right, let's begin with a definition. This might surprise you and... I think it probably surprises me when I first encounter it, but this is actually one of the most difficult of God's attributes to define. So let me give you a simple definition. And if you just want to stay with the simple definition, that's kind of where I live my life. Live there. That's fine, okay? I want you to know there are more questions. There's a little more complexity to it. We're going to touch a little bit on that. Some of you maybe aren't interested in that. That's fine. We deal with some of the complex parts of the definition because in reading your Bible or if someone hostile to Christianity comes with questions or whatever, you may at times encounter pushback on your simple definition of God's power. And it can be legitimate. And so it might help you a little bit to have some answers. So that's why we go a little bit deeper into this. So let me just start with a simple definition. And for 99% of your life, this is enough. <laughs> so just keep this. We're going to say that God's power means that God can do whatever he wants. That's simple. God can do whatever he wants. Here's uh, Psalm 115.3. You were whispering that, Kathy. This is your favorite verse, and I love this one too. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So you see the definition in that, in that verse. It doesn't just say he does all. It says he does all that he pleases. So God can do whatever he wants. Amen to that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about some of the complexities here. And we won't go too far into them. Hopefully we don't lose you here, but this maybe is the simplest part of the complex part of it, if you will. And this is something you do want to keep in mind. You might think, oh, omnipotence, almighty, all power. That just means God can do everything. That's not true. Is that shocking? Oh, man. 
God, there, it's not true that God can do everything with no exceptions. So let me put it to you this way. I say, I learned songs in Sunday school. Are those true? Yeah, generally, yes, but you do need to keep in mind. Let me ask you, can God sin? No, God cannot sin. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God who does not lie. That's actually one word in the Greek, who does not lie, apsudes. It refers to someone, the ah is not. Apsudes is a liar. He's not a liar. He doesn't lie. God, if you have the good King James version, God that cannot lie, right? So does not, that cannot. Either one of those are probably accurate. God cannot lie. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that God's omnipotence doesn't mean he can do everything without exception? He cannot lie. Here's another one, James 1.13. Quote, God cannot. God cannot. What? Be tempted with evil. There's something else that God can't do or can't be done to God in that case. So, God cannot do anything morally wrong. We know that. But just so you're aware, if you're talking about God's omnipotence, you should be aware. It doesn't mean God can do everything without exception. He can't do anything wrong. It's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. But just be aware of that. There's another category of things that God cannot do that are not morally wrong. But we're going to call these logically contradictory. Can God make a triangle with four corners? No. He can't do that because that's logically contradictory. A triangle by definition has three. This sort of relates to the question that's brought up sometimes by skeptics. Can God make a rock too heavy for him to lift? So maybe you'll hear that one. This is called the paradox of the stone. There's some more complexity to this that we're not going to touch on, but you could put that under this category and we can say, the answer to that is no. And the skeptic says, aha, God can't do everything. But you're fine because you already know that the definition of God's power is not that he can do everything without exception. You already, he can't lie. So if that's your definition, you're fine. So if he can't logically contradict himself, that's also fine. Because we know that God's power doesn't mean he just does everything, no exception. So he can't do moral wrong, like lying. And here he can't do what's logically contradictory. John Frame writes on this. He says, so the preventer here is God's infinity. It's because he's so infinite. That's why he can't do it. Together with his logical nature or it's his power itself. He's too strong for that. These are all, of course, strengths rather than weaknesses. So again, if you have that in your mind, that God's power is not just he can do everything, then that objection is no longer really an objection. So, in summary, if you just want a summary of this little complex side point here of God's power, really what we mean by God's power is that God can do everything that aligns with his nature and attributes. And if it doesn't align with his nature and attributes, he can't do it. So, God can't lie because he's true. God can't lift us, make a stone too big to lift because he's logically consistent, which is a strength. That's not a weakness. So 
just good to keep in your mind that these things are so. The summary of it is kind of given in 2 Timothy 2.13. This is referring to Jesus, but it says, he cannot deny himself. So when you think of God's power, just remember, it doesn't mean he can do everything because he can't do anything that would deny himself, deny his attributes, deny his character. So he'll be logically consistent, he'll be morally right. All right, that's the little complex side of the definition. But again, let's go back to our simple one. When we say simply, God can do whatever he wants. That's a nice, simple definition because that includes that discussion because God's only going to want to do things that are consistent with who he is. He's not going to want to lie. He doesn't want to make a rock too big for him to pick up. He doesn't want to contradict logic. So if you just keep the simple definition in your mind, Psalm 115.3, he does whatever he pleases. It's not he does whatever, he does whatever he pleases. That's what we mean by that. That's what's under the hood there, if you will. All right. Now, you may think, I've read a lot of Psalms about God's power, and they never talked about that. <laughs> they never got into the philosophical minutiae. You're so right, okay? When the power of God is presented to us in the Bible, even though we, it's okay for us to try to think through these questions, that's not the way it's presented to us. The power of God is presented in Scripture as something that should evoke worship in you. It's not something you put under the microscope and try to analyze and figure it all out, and now you got it and you move on. Instead, it booms in front of you, and you fall to your face, and there's a bright shining light. It's like Sinai, ablaze with glory, and you go, God is powerful. <laughs> so, in any of the attributes we consider, although we do try to analyze them, for especially to answer objections, I hope you realize our primary goal is a worshipful response. So God's power is presented in Scripture, never with these philosophical details, always with the sense of respond in worship. Isn't this amazing? Secondly, it's also presented calling on us to trust. So God will talk about his power. He can do all things in context, probably most of the time in context where he's calling on people to trust him. So worship and trust. Let me give you just a few passages that talk about this very thing. Worship. Here is Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, which is an amazing passage showing Christ and his glory and God is there too. And sometimes you have to figure out, when are we talking about the Father? When are we talking about the Son? But they're one, so it can be each. Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. So that's his eternity and immutability. We know about that. But look at this last line. The Almighty. Pantocrator is the Greek. It's Almighty. It's used here in one other place. And again, Panta, all, Krator, power, all, power. Sure, there are exceptions, but that's not the way it's discussed. It's discussed in Scripture in a way that just throws it in front of you, a God of all power, Alpha, Omega, always immutably there. Glorious vision of Christ here in Revelation 1, echoes of the Old Testament where God's power is demonstrated, and all of this is meant in, John, or in Revelation 1 to help the Apostle John respond in worship, and then through him to help us respond in worship. We call him the Almighty. So the next time we sing a song and it brings that term up, 
almighty, immutable, God-only wise, whatever we're singing, you don't have to go in your storage and go, oh, but there's exceptions. <laughs> we know that for the skeptic or whatever, but when scripture presents God's power, it does use these all, the sense of all, and it's right to do it. This would be maybe a little bit like a husband, on Mother's Day especially, telling his wife, I love you with all my heart. Now, you could philosophically break down that and say, all your heart? <laughs> there are exceptions. And yes, there are exceptions. But he doesn't have to make list all those exceptions every time he tells her he loves her, right? So when you're reading scripture, you know there's these exceptions. He can't lie. But often scripture is going to present it as God can do everything. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to express it. Otherwise, you'd have a million footnotes and asterisks and it'd get too complex. So that's what you have with the idea of the Almighty. And it causes a response of worship. Here's one of my favorite psalms. Maybe even one of my favorite halves of a psalm. I really love Psalm 24. The last part of Psalm 24. The first part's great too, but verses 7 through 10. This could be foretelling Christ's entry into heaven after his victory at the cross, the resurrection, he ascends. This could be referring to that. But just like with Revelation 1, Jesus is God. And originally when Psalm 24 was spoken, people perceived it as this is God. This is God, the King of glory. So thinking of that in Psalm 24, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates! And my ESV has an exclamation mark. The original doesn't, but that's very fitting. Why? Because this is worship. This isn't, lift up your heads, O gates. <laughs> Understand the worship of this. Lift up your heads, O gates. Get ready to receive this person. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who's the king of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And that's given in the Psalter as an opportunity for God's people to worship. This is an important note as we're talking about this worshipful response to God's power. There in the original, in Psalm 24, when they say the Lord, strong, mighty in battle, their first thought is, God had led them into the land of Canaan and very powerfully driven out their enemies. So that was his sovereignty, if you will, him overseeing the battles that were taking place to drive out the idolaters from the land and to give them their land. The first time that they got to witness the immense power of God was just before that when they come out of the land of Egypt. The plagues were meant to be God's outstretched arm. That's the language that's used. I will stretch out my arm. So here is God stretching out his arm in a very physical, tangible way in this world, demonstrating his power. And the Exodus story is such a good picture of God's power because you have God stretching out his arm. And as my little four-year-old will tell you quite clearly, it's his favorite part, is you also have Pharaoh stretching out his arm. And it's arm wrestling. It's to see whose arm's stronger. And God does that very intentionally. The plagues, as you're probably aware, have reference to several of the gods that were worshipped in the land of Egypt. 
And this is God's way of showing Pharaoh, I'm stronger than you. So over and over, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I can get glory, so I can demonstrate my power. And that is what he does. He does that in the Exodus. He does that in the land of Canaan. He says at times, you stand by, see the salvation of God. I will go forth in my power. So what we see here is that God's power, part of the reason we respond to God's power in worship is not just because it's terrifying and huge, because it is but because God mercifully uses his power to rescue us. Even the gospel, having Christ go to the cross, is an expression of God's power. God pours out his powerful wrath upon his son. God initiates, he makes the plan, he sovereignly guides all that happens. Read the end of any of the gospels and you cannot avoid the sense that everything's planned. Jesus confidently moving toward his task because God powerfully is guiding events. Even though Jesus on the cross looks like weakness, and it is weakness to the world, yet he arises on the third day, defeats the devil, and it is an expression of God's power. So, when you think of God's power, you should have a sense of worship because it's immense, but also it's a sense of worship because it's redeeming. As a side note, in the New Testament, we move away from these physical expressions, the plagues of Egypt and so forth. There are still miracles to confirm the message for sure. But what you have in the New Testament is Paul speaking more of these strongholds of the devil, which is a metaphor for Satan and demons working in the spiritual realm. For ideas that we tear down, he's not talking about going and besieging a city. That was in Canaan, what was happening. But when Paul is using that in the new covenant where we are, we're still engaged in a battle. The gates of hell are still opposing the church. They will not prevail, but they're opposing. So we still require just as much the power of God to deliver us, to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness. But even as Christians, as a local church, I hope you know that all the hope that we have to be on the straight and narrow, to be healthy, to be growing spiritually, all of this, our safety, everything is fully dependent on the power of God. It's not like we're just a nice church on the corner and Satan just leaves us alone. It's it's not like that at all. And you know that in your own life. I hope you do. And that's true in the church. So what keeps us as a church, I always think of the church, maybe this is pessimistic, but it's probably accurate. Any church, it's like a massive ship with a ton of people on it And the keel is like, you know, that big. (laughs) So it's just ready to flip over at any time, you know. So why doesn't it? Because God's power preserves his people. So even though you're not engaged in taking your sword and going out into the field of battle like you read in the Old Testament, in another sense, you really are. We are engaged in an immense conflict. And the confidence that we have is because God goes with us. So the reason we worship God for his power The king of glory is because he's the Lord strong in battle. He's fighting our battles for us. You're still a Christian? You still a Christian? Wow, God's strong, isn't he? (laughs) God is powerful to have protected you over and over and continues doing so. So the first way we respond to God's power in scripture is worship. We've kind of touched on this. The second way that God's power is shown in the Bible is as something that deserves your trust. 
Here's the famous incident in Genesis 18. God has told Abraham, who's 90 years old. 90, none of us are 90 years old here. He told him he's 90 years old. Oh, he's 100 at this point. Sorry. His wife Sarah's 90. He's 100. Sarah's 90. God has been telling him for decades, you're going to have a son. And behold, no son. So now he's 100, his wife's 90. You understand that can't happen. And so all along, Abraham's trying to believe. Romans tells us he was believing, but it's hard. So he has Ishmael with Hagar. Maybe we got to help God out. And God responds, you don't have to help me. It's just my timeline's different than yours, but I'm going to do it. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Even when the angels come and they tell him, next year you'll have your son. You remember that Rebecca is in the tent and she laughs. That's why they call him Isaac, which means laughter in Hebrew. She laughs because she thinks that is not a possibility. And she's right. A nine-year-old cannot have a baby. It's not possible. Genesis 18, 14, the angels there, they say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Question mark. That's asked twice in Jeremiah as well. And it's not asked as a genuine question. <laughs> it's rhetorical, meaning nothing is too hard for the Lord with the philosophical exceptions. Okay, push those away. Generally speaking, nothing's too hard for the Lord. Quote, at the appointed time, God says, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. This is important. God's calling for Abraham's trust and the way he does it says, you need to think about this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This was important because until this happened with Abraham, this had never happened before. It's not like Abraham had any precedent that he could look back on. Oh yeah, there's a bunch of 90-year-old women who've had babies before. It's never happened. Maybe the first chapters of Genesis where everybody lived hundreds of years. But in his day, this was not something that happened. So for Abraham to trust God's promise required him to believe that God could do something for which there was no earthly precedent whatsoever. And that's why he gets the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? What we see here is that when God shows you his power, he at times requires of you what we can call a holy creativity. Sometimes God's calling you to trust him when you cannot imagine in your wildest of dreams, how a terrible situation could possibly turn out okay. It just doesn't seem that way. You have no precedent in your life. You've never seen something this horrible turn out this good in your own life. You've not seen it in the lives of other people. You can't imagine how this, God could use this for good. Maybe some ultimate sense, you know, it's insignificant in your mind, but it's just terrible. What God calls us to with this question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? As God says, I've promised if you're a Christian, it will turn out good. It won't be like these modern movies where they kill off main characters at the end. I hate that. I will never watch those movies. If you kill off a main character, I'm done. I'm done with you. You're dead to me. But that's not the way that the Christian story works out. It turns out well for you in the end. But see, God doesn't tell you how. He doesn't tell you exactly how he's going to do it. What that requires of you is a trust in the power of God. Are you going to physically die, your body deteriorate, and then God somehow put things back together and you have a physical body again and you're really you? So I've never seen that happen. 
I never did. I've not seen one person raised back to life in my life. Never. You've not either. Probably. (laughs) People who die and they remain dead. So how do you know you're going to die and then you're going to be raised back to life? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul addresses objections people were raising like, If you die, you deteriorate. How can you be raised back to life? How's that possible? Same objections in our materialistic culture today. That's simply not possible. You die, your body deteriorates. It gets sucked up into plants. They grow. Someone else eats the plant. Now you're part of them. Sorry if that's freaky, but that's what happens. So how are you going to resurrect? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let me just ask There's your body. Where did your body come from in the first place? (laughs) The God who made everything by saying, let it be. Can he remake it? Yes, but that does require holy creativity and trusting the power of God. That's what Abraham had to have when it came to Isaac. Here's New Testament, Mark chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he says, it would be easier for you to take a big old camel, shove it through the tiny hole at the top of a needle than for you to take a rich person and shove them into the kingdom of God. (laughs) saying it's very hard to have wealth and be saved. And his disciples respond thinking, whoa, we thought the rich were going in first because they give the biggest gifts in the offering plate. So if not even they can be saved, how can anybody be saved? And you remember Jesus' response. His response is, you're right. With man, it's impossible. It's nothing you've ever seen before. He says, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So you have a coworker with a sailor's mouth who ridicules Christianity quite actively And you think, is it even worth sharing the gospel? (laughs) They already know it. They already hate it. They already hate me. It's useless. Well, with man, it's useless. With God, all things are possible. Paul, as we'll see when we get into Galatians later in the year, he says, you know my former manner of life in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But then God Save me out of that. (laughs) So a part of our trust in the power of God is what leads us to evangelism. You can go into evangelism aware of like, oh man, I'm not the greatest evangelist. But that's somewhat irrelevant because we're not depending on your power of evangelism. If we're trusting in the power of God, then we bring this simple message of the gospel. Paul said at times he would come and in trembling and much weakness, he preached a very simple gospel to the Corinthians It wasn't in eloquent words. He didn't do a very good job. (laughs) And there's a church in Corinth. (laughs) Similarly, if you have trust in the power of God, that with God, all things are possible, that's what allows us to keep evangelizing. That's what keeps you from losing heart. That's what gives you hope when people are hostily set against the gospel. When you have grown children and they rebel against Christ and they go and do their own thing, what gives you hope? that you're going to be persuasive enough to convince them back onto the right path? You're going to say just the right words that they need to hear in the moment, and they're going to break down crying and repent. Unlikely. With man, it's impossible. 
but the power of God, with God all things are possible. So thus far for the power of God. May it cause us to respond in worship and trust. God can do whatever he wants. Now let's take this as we get toward the end here and make one further application that will relate to Jared. God's power helps us worship and trust. It also does one other thing that maybe you've not thought about or not think about very much. If you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 20, one of the most unusual verses in your Bible is Exodus 20.20. This is God's people brought out of Egypt with great power and they are taken over to Mount Sinai. And it's a very terrifying scene. It's very loud, thunder, sound of trumpets. The mountain is on fire. Don't imagine you've ever seen, maybe in California, a full mountain on fire, but very frightening thing. This is Exodus 20. I'll start here in 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, (laughs) rightly so, and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Pause there. Do the people at this point understand the power of God? Yes. It's hard to stand before a mountain that's exploding and not imagine that God's powerful. So they are seeing the power of God. Now listen to what Moses says in verse 20. Moses said to the people, you see the power of God? Don't fear. Because God has come in power, God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What is the first thing he says? Do not fear. And then what's the next thing? God came that the fear of him may be before you. (laughs) So they say like, wait a minute. Don't fear, don't fear, do fear, don't fear. The point that he's making here is that God came with power. They saw the power. He said, don't be afraid that God's going to use this power now to smash you right away. So wait, don't be afraid of that. Like you're just dead, done. He said, actually, God has a purpose in showing you his power. If you see any more of God's power through this class today, here's a purpose of why God lets you see his power. So that you leave here with something you didn't have before, And it's the fear of God. Bigger amount of the fear of God. And what's that going to do when you leave here with the fear of God and you go to live your life on Wednesday? He says, it's going to help you not sin. How does that happen? You're aware that the fear of God is not the slavish fear. God's going to crush me. We're not talking about that. But I also want to emphasize it includes an element that's not far from that. There is a sense in which there should be a trembling before the power of Almighty God. If you really realize who you're living in front of, Coram Deo, you're living in front of God, there should be a fear of God when you're looking at a sin. When a coworker of the opposite sex just starts to make insinuations and you're married, but you're thinking, hmm, at that moment, you should look over and have a fear of God. 
You should have a sense of God's power. Be sure your sin will find you out. God's going to see it and you don't get away with it. If you're a believer, you get disciplined. If you're not a believer, you get judged. So this is a fear of God. I know we don't like to talk like that. Seems really judgy. Seems really harsh. And we have to balance it with the gospel. But that's right there in the text. And that is true. A fear of God produces in you a humility. This is like a friend of mine who, um, I'm from Southern California. I had never seen a, can I say gun in a church? I had never seen a gun. See, Southern California, can I say that? So I had never seen a gun before in person, ever. And I move out here, Boonville. I had a friend out in Boonville. That's my first experience. Brings me into his house, says, hey, check this out. Pops open a briefcase. I don't know what that weapon was, but it was big. I thought, can you have that? Is that allowed? It's like, yeah, we shoot up furniture. We burn it. It's great. So it's all foreign to me, but I had a friend and his brother was very much into handguns and so forth. And his, I believe it was his father had passed away. So he's with his brother. His mom is there. Other siblings are there. They're going through his father's old stuff. His mom walks out and she's got a handgun that belonged to his father. And she comes out and to be funny, she points it at him. Says, aha, you know. Well, this guy's brother very much into handguns, immediately steps in, grabs that, points it to the floor. She says, don't worry, it's not loaded. It's loaded. (laughs) So in this instance, what was the issue is the mom did not have a proper fear or reverence of the power of that gun. The brother, because he knew more about them, he had a proper reverence. He liked them, you know, but he had a proper reverence. And that's what God wants to produce in you. So bringing this back to Jared. Jared has isolated himself. He's indulged himself. He's thought so many bitter thoughts against God and everyone else. And finally, he reaches a breaking point. It can't go on like this forever. He has really dreaded over these years facing his sin as sin. He's been okay facing it as a coping mechanism. He's been okay looking at his pornography as his response to suffering as a victim. He's been okay thinking about it as a consequence of his unmet needs in marriage because these all made him feel a little bit noble. But when he faces his sin as a sin, as his own choice in rebellion against God, he's tried to avoid that thought, but he avoids it no more. It's midnight, his wife is asleep, he's been sinning again, and finally he stops. Finally, he faces the fact of it. He's not some noble guy and everyone else is the problem. He realizes he's been actively, repeatedly sinning in the presence of the Almighty God. See, Jared had been thinking a lot about himself, and it didn't leave him a lot of time to think about the God he knew from Sunday school and from sermons growing up, from his Baptist grandfather. But now he's thinking about it, and it scared him. Scared him to think that God had been watching as he treated one of God's precious daughters like dirt, his wife. Scared him to think that he had been really slandering God's name at work. People know he's a Christian and that he watches pornography all the time. Jared remembered all the hard things he'd prayed, how he had blamed God. God, why don't you? How he'd blamed his wife, how he dismissed his caring grandfather, how he considered his wife naive when she brought him the gospel, and he realized he did all of those things with God watching. Not a fantasy of a God, but an actual, almighty, omnipotent God watching him. 
And it dawned on him that God could very justly have crushed him at any time. There would be no objection that could be made. This would be completely right. He remembered the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which was in the New Testament, where God brought judgment on the church, killing two people who were sinning against God. Suddenly, it struck him. God could do that for him. His life wasn't guaranteed to the next day. And so he said words that he had not said for many years. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Desperate, he throws himself on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. And it was a real fear that drove him to it. But once he's there, then he sees in the blood of Jesus protection. Protection from that looming cosmic power, even divine power set against him in fury. He sees in the blood of Jesus a shield that Christ takes the wrath of God, took his wrath already on the cross, and there's none left for him. He breathes a sigh of relief. He remembers these truths. He holds to them desperately like to a rope over a canyon. He realizes this isn't something to dismiss and throw away. If you really believe in the power of God, then you cling to God's provision for deliverance. And that's what Jared was at this moment doing. He realized in that moment, all God's power, which had been pushing against him in discipline, now is behind him, pushing him forward, saying, let's get you out of this mess that you are in. As time goes on, it's not easy. Jared confesses his sin to God, to his wife, to his church, to others, and begins the slow process of getting out of these addictions, turning away from pornography. He realized what Pharaoh had realized a long time earlier. God's arm is a lot stronger. And now Jared lives his life, not perfectly, but with something he didn't have before. The fear of God, so that he may not sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you very much that you are not a weak God and you're not ignorable, not for long. You do interpose yourself in this life or in the life to come because you will not be ignored. You are a father. Where is your honor? You deserve that. Lord, I pray you'd help us to have a healthy reverence for you. Not one that's slavish, not one that's servile in a negative way, but one that's real, one that's not flippant when it comes to you, but acknowledges and reverences your great power and trusts you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.